Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Vertex, we know the pace of global commerce is increasing, which makes managing tax more complex. And your enterprise systems weren't built to handle that tax complexity. This is where we come in with our platform that enables continuous compliance, giving you more transparency, improved accuracy, and better confidence in your tax data. To learn more about continuous compliance, visit vertexinc.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com I return home to the sound of music. Hundreds of worshippers, the entire growing population of the Paraclete's Gulch, more, I think, even than when we left for the South, have gathered before the gates in order to greet me properly. Their song drifts through the pines in rapturous welcome, and sibling rain winds down the windows so we can hear them. A choir so immense that the disjoints and the bum notes are utterly lost in the sea of voices, a sea so immense that it sounds absolutely harmonious and perfectly single-minded. My people are singing the drowning song for me. Music and lyrics written some 200 years ago by a Catabasian shawl who wanted to capture the unease, the dread, and the beauty of the sweet music she'd heard beneath the water's surface. A sensation that she knew could never be captured in human chords or human notes. But she wanted to make the attempt all the same. She died still working on it think. But it's beautiful, no matter if it's incomplete. I listen, and I listen, as the sound swells all around me, and I watch as we swing up through the trees, and all at once we can see that great crowd, that seething tide of color, with banners raised high and children lifted upon their parents' shoulders. And it's for me. It's all for me. When I step out from the back of the car, my people drop to their knees amongst the rubble and the roots without a single care for their shins. There are tears streaming down the cheeks of grown disciples. Flushed passion and love in the faces of siblings who were already deep in the faith by the time I came to it. Those who ought to outrank me. There are disciples from breakaway sex. 
resplendent in outrageous costumes and barely comprehensible to the rest of us, who've come back into the fold for the first time in a century. And they too are on their knees. It's like they've been transported by the sight of me. Like they're all seeing something I can't. Freshly woven robe of gold and green and white, waves lapping around the hem and the sleeves, is placed over my shoulders. Because everyone knew that I went south to be formally acknowledged as a Catabasian of the faith. And now that I have returned, my people have absolutely no doubt that I have been recognized. I deliver a blessing. Something rote and well-worn from the first chapter of the verses that comes to me quickly and readily. And I think... I think my voice sounds reedy and tired and strained. But my people deliver the call and response back to me with such fervor and such joy that I wonder whether my self-doubt is merited. Perhaps my voice sounds strong and certain. Perhaps I'm as all of them see me. So, yes. Of course I'm happy coming home like that. And if I'm not happy, then perhaps this is what it means to lead. To be a vessel for the happiness of others. Perhaps any guilt is the weight that all great men must bear. And when the welcome is over, my retinue announced that I must be feeling tired from the journey. And I'm led up through the twisting corridors of the gulch to my chambers, and left there alone in my robe that is heavy and hot, amongst books and gifts and more food and drink than any one person could possibly need. This is my life, now that I'm a prophet. Now that I'm loved. I'm left alone with every comfort for long hours at a time, because my people know that I'm in direct communication with the Trawler Man himself, and so I need my solitude and my space to make communion with the garden below. We have holy fools and hermits who sequester themselves away for years at a time. Zealots who have drowned themselves daily in search of revelation or eat and drink only the thickest silt that the white gull has to offer. And while a Catabasian has responsibilities, a prophet is holier still than all of these. So they give me space, and they give me solitude, so that I may maintain my purity. Sometimes my people come to me and tell me what is happening in the world, and I tell them how they must respond. They do not disagree with me. No matter how it turns out, I never feel the consequence of any one decision. Sometimes I attend ceremonies and sacrifices, and I play the starring role at each of these. If I am lonely, then perhaps this is only the loneliness felt by any creature that strays too close to the divine. No doubt a god would feel even lonelier. Sibylline Rain tells me a great deal that should be pleasing to hear. Our scouts have been searching in the hills upriver for the white gull's lost source, the Grand Aquifer. They believe they are close. Or, at least, Rain tells me they believe they are close. We are not safe here. 
I'm certain of that. They found us once, and they can do it again. But Siblin Rain tells me that our people are continuing to flock to the Gulch as a sacred place. The site of our last great battle. And how can we flee when our strength is growing day by day as long as we remain here? Sibylline Rain tells me that anger has been growing towards High Catabasian Romont for years in parts of the South. That the rapidity of my ascent has led to further questions in turn. How has one young disciple achieved so much for us in such a short time? And our High Catabasian so little in all of his decades of service? Sibylline Rain tells me that rumors continue to spread. Some of it spread by us, of course, but some of it coming naturally. That there is a plot afoot amongst the Catabasians' council to legalize us. That Romont is not firm or fervent enough to stand up to the legislatures. That we will surrender ourselves to avoid the wartime draft and the raids that will follow. And soon enough, our people know the hostility of the council towards me. How Romont greeted me with suspicion and without the respect I was owed. Perhaps even with jealousy. Some, Sibling Rain tells me, are already beginning to curse Romont's name alongside Devlin's when they drink. All of this is useful to our continued cause. And to my continued survival. All of it passes over me like water across polished stone. Because I know that I will be alone in my chamber one day soon. And they will come to me with the news that Carpenter is dead. Killed upon my direct and specific order. Her body desecrated. And I will have to outlast that moment when the news is brought to me. I will have to maintain my calm and my composure. I must remain holy and pure, and they must not see a flicker of doubt or guilt or sorrow upon my face. I remind myself over and over that she was a necessary sacrifice. That I had no other choice and only a few seconds in which to react. That she was already an outcast to the faith that if anyone had a hope of getting away from the Gulch alive, it'd be her. All of it feels like a performance. But performance is what my life has become as a prophet in Catabasia. And so I have plenty of time to practice. Children of the water, I have spoken with the Catabasians' council and I am relieved, although not at all surprised, that they have formally confirmed that there is no truth whatsoever to the rumors of legalization spreading amongst our people. We must band together, be watchful of any attempts by the lawful authorities to sow discord among us. So, how will you kill him? It'll need to take place in my own chambers. I am, after all, the intended victim. The Paraclete's Gulch, as tradition, reserves the welcome's rest for its most honored guests. It's been a long time, of course. I think I was eleven or twelve the last time I was there. But nevertheless, I remember the shape of the chambers passing well, and I've been perusing the maps from the recidivists' halls. The rooms are in the highest reaches of the caves. Secluded. Secure. On the eve of Faulkner's formal initiation as a Catabasian of the parish, as is traditional, will carry out the ceremony of expurgation, the drowned man's hearing. 
I shall be his confessor, naturally, and my chambers will be the proper place for a private hearing. My man Grenshaw's volunteered to be our sacrifice. He grew up with Sister Carpenter in the seminary, he even vaguely remembers her. It is plausible enough that they might have been friends and remained allies in secret. And his mother was born in the Linger Straits, too, which makes him even more suitable as a foreign asset. I'll summon Faulkner to see me in private for the expurgatory rites. My other men will be somewhere downstairs, enjoying the festivities and visibly in public. Grenshaw will remain behind. Well hidden. A gunshot, an alarm, some screaming. It seems almost a brazen repetition of Mason's own death, don't you think? An expansion upon earlier themes. All we truly have are echoes, Grieve. The river turns and it turns again. And every hero and every tragedy in the verses is a shadow of those that came before. I emerge, holding Grenshaw at gunpoint, bloodied, battered. My men come dashing up alongside Faulkner's people. Together, we drag him through the halls, shouting the truth. That Grenshaw burst in, his revolver pointed at my head, screaming, Linger's glory, Linger's might! And Catabasian Faulkner heroically flung himself in front of the bullet to save my life. There will be a swift trial. Grenshaw will confess the matter in detail before he is executed, and I shall order Catabasian Faulkner sent to the garden below with the greatest of honors. His final words, delivered in my arms. We have been misled. All of us tricked. We were taught that our enemy was the government, the policemen, our comrades of this great nation. I am dying, High Catabasian. I can see my life's true love, Sister Thurix, waiting for me beneath the black waves. Sister Thurix was his life's true love. In the tale, in the tale. They'll love it. It's a useful distraction. I wonder, Romont. Are we plotting an assassination or managing a radio serial? We're doing both. The truth must stir the heart to keep skepticism at bay. It feels honest. Are we saying that a great man such as Catabasian Faulkner would be incapable of love? <laughs> Let me finish, he whispers. Before I go, dear friend, I pass on this final message from the Father in the water. One weighty task I leave in your trembling hands. There's been too much bloodshed, too many lives lost. Let there be peace. At long last, between ourselves and the legislatures, let there be peace. Ah. Soon afterwards, Grieve, you will move to announce the results of the negotiations with Adjudicator Shrew, the legalization of the faith, a new beginning. There will be celebrations. There will Why be... would the CLS want you dead? To sow discord between us and the legislatures. To prevent our parish and our god from joining our faith's great strength to that of the peninsula. We have been misled. All of us tricked. Are we so important, though, to merit such a tangled conspiracy? The faithful will believe we are, for we are everything to them. You have doubts, Grieve. Let me hear them. There can be no secrets between us. Another council member could go instead. It would be... Romont, I think it would be an entirely unwarranted risk to put you in harm's way. Well, maybe this is our problem, Grieve. Maybe we have become too afraid to take a risk. Who is Faulkner, truly? And an attention-getting charlatan, a self-important performer, an egotist, a chancer, a clown. This is not a true luminary of the faith. This is not one of the old men of thrashing water and slick and steel, steadfast as the tides. This is not a man who deserves to be remembered. 
And yet, and yet, stories are currents, and he plunges headlong into those rushing waters time and time again, and through reckless fortune he survives them, and this becomes the proof he needs that all eyes should be upon him, that he possesses a gift beyond the rest of us. We cannot win against a man like this if we are afraid to even dip our own toes in at the river's edge. Can we? No. I will go to lay the Catabasian's wreath of kelp upon his brow, as is my duty, and Faulkner's people will understand that this is meant as a great honor and a momentous occasion, a historic moment that they are blessed to witness, and they never will believe that I was the one who meant him harm. I will go, and all of the parish will be horrified to learn that the life of the High Catabasian was threatened by a foreign assassin, and the parish's brightest young star extinguished, and their hearts will soar with relief when they see me alive and well, and they will rejoice at my next commandment, because I will be a boy and anchor to them in the flood time. I will go, and afterwards it will be written that I went. If there are to be no secrets between us, Romont, then let me take the risk of offending you. It has been a very long time since I've seen you like this. Animated? Swept up. Impassioned. Perhaps misled yourself. If stories are currents, I think perhaps the storyteller is in the greatest danger of being pulled under the surface. I would not see you dragged and drowned in a tale of your own invention for the sake of a, a contest of wills against this holy brat. Faulkner has you at a disadvantage. For now. He is young. He is unknown. His impurities have yet to make themselves known. His circumstances allow him to act as an agent of change in spite of his personal flaws. You should remember that, because you and I, we were very similar indeed, I think. We were young and we were hungry. We could denounce past and present in the name of better things to come. And that made the elders call us as dangerous a foe as the legislators themselves. And hope was the rushing tide that drove us onwards. Now, though, we're the old guard, Romont. The last generation. We blinked. We dreamt. We slept. And all at once we were no longer chasing reform. We were in flight from it. We did not intend to act out the same failures as those disappointments, those cowards, those compromisers who came before us. But we broke like water upon black rocks all the same. The young do not trust us, Romont. They resent us. They gnash their teeth at the government out of ancestral habit, but make no mistake. You and I are a central part of what they seek to overthrow. You don't know if I can beat him. I believe you can kill him. What I wonder is the alternative course of action you're proposing. We let the lie stand, Mason goes unavenged, the legislators turn their back on us. Does that speak of reform? Will that placate them? The only thing that will change will be that Faulkner will rise and rise until he becomes us and we become his shadow, and our sole satisfaction will be to watch him fail in turn, while our people are arrested and drafted and our long decline becomes fast and precipitous. Do you think us so cowardly, Grieve? So frail? So... so... finished? I think that most of the world's great stupidity is acted out by those who cannot stand to lose control.
In a month's time, I will be 71 years old. Perhaps my life is already written out. A good, long life and a decent act of service in dangerous times, I like to think. No matter what failings or compromises were required along the way. I led our people through some of our darkest hours. Through foul purges and lurking in fouler hiding places. I was the first High Catabasian to lay my hands upon the wreck of the Gulf Walker. I was the first to read the translations of the Pishing version. I gave the order for the reclamation of the Gulch. These were not insignificant things, Grieve. This was not an insignificant life. I've seen the passages they've drafted for me. I've read my chapter. I've approved the words. It reads well. And yet, in a century's time, perhaps some scribbler will be thumbing through the verses, making revisions, amending and trimming down as he goes, because so much will have happened since then that needs to be included. And he will look at my chapter, and he will look at Brother Faulkner's life as a rival to mine, packed with incident and cheap, empty sentiment, and some ludicrously exaggerated battle scenes in which he claims to have played the central part. And my life's record will be neatly snipped away and tossed to the floor, cuttings and ends, as his immortality is inked and printed and bound instead. How could anyone stand that grief? How could anyone be expected to come to the last footfalls of their life and, upon looking back, watch as everything they've built is swept away? I lament your ill fortune in having such troubles, High Catabasian Romont. But I can bring our people back into the fold without further harm. If the legislators accept us as a licensed faith, if we're protected from the draft, that would be historic. Wouldn't it? It could well end up being my life's true legacy. They won't be able to excise that from the record, will they now? Am I wrong about that too, Grieve? Do you think Mason was wrong? No. I don't think so. I can understand what the true believers like Faulkner are afraid of. I can picture the inevitability of what's coming next. The crassness of it. The visions to the sacred text. Advertising opportunities. A partnership with the Jolly King Kipper, perhaps. More compromises. More impurities. Few clear waters stay that way for long. But they have river gods in the Linger Straits, too. Maybe we toss away Mason's proposal. We embrace our continued retreat. We watch as our disciples are caught and drafted or hauled into battle scenes. And then the government wins its war, and next year it celebrates its newfound powers and popularity with a fresh round of purges against the illicit faiths. And the cycle continues. And that opportunity doesn't come around again. Or maybe the CLS wins, and their priests will be standing victorious along the riverbanks, preaching a new name and a new history for the god that used to belong to us. If we must be devoured, at least we can negotiate the seasoning. It's going to be hard, though. No matter what comes, it's going to be hard. There are few people and few faiths in this world capable of great change without greater fracture. Some of those who love us now will come to hate us. And those who always doubted us will turn their backs. But maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe a schism with Faulkner and his people now, a clean and clarifying break, is better for us in the long run than something that tangles and twists and festers on for decades to come. But then, 
I suppose, that would become your legacy too, wouldn't it, Romont? One final sentence in your immortal chapter. The man who broke the faith. We have been misled. All of us tricked. We were taught that our enemy was the government, the policemen, our comrades of this great nation, when a far more terrible foe threatens us from the north. Romont. Uh -huh. What happens if you fail? Then... Then you must take my place. Until a new leader of the faith can be properly elected, Grieve. Finalize the negotiations. Announce our legitimacy. Give Faulkner no choice but to obey or split with us. You must promise me this. Anything is better than letting him win. I quite agree. All right. Let's kill the bastard. So, I have something to admit, my friends. On this show, we like to think the best of people. So I, Chuck Harm, have been extending an olive branch to the citizens of the peninsula, though they are our enemy. On our last episode, I addressed the Peninsula military directly. I told them, your Saint Strikes are missing their targets, ours are striking with precision. Our Lord of Breeze and Brine is a thousand times more powerful than your Grand Mistral, and he summons a favorable wind for us day after day after day. You're not hitting a barn door right now. And it seems like the pennies, they didn't like that. Because I understand they've been draping some banners over their cliffs. Where are you, Chuck? Cluck, cluck, Chuck. Come stand in front of the barn door, Chuck. I... I get the impression that they think simply because I am reporting from behind a desk in Nesh that I am unqualified to make judgments on the state of this war or the sorry state of their military. That I am a coward. As if coming to the coast and reporting from there would be proof of courage. I will not be goaded. But I... I also have nothing to fear from the misguided bravado of a nation in collapse, or the tauntings of fascist grunts. And I would be proud, of course, to stand amongst our troops on the front lines and review the condition of the war from there. Immensely proud. So, we'll see. I think everyone's going to see. How you doing tonight, CLS? That was Chuck Harm with news from Nash. But now it's seven o'clock on the hour, and we're playing smooth tunes through the night. Starting you off with a little B some Sophie Lynch and Steve Hendricks. Follow it up with some Chrysanthi Gretsch, a little Marta de Silva, and then we're going to finish things off with Reese Lawton and HR. Enjoy! Hello! Hello! Sorry to bother you so late. I'm just, um, headed towards Nesh, and I wanted to check that I was going the right way. Good evening, dear. Yes, it is the right way, but you've got a way to go yet. You come a long way? Yes. I came inland from the coast. I'm surprised they let you through then. There's a military blockade on the coastal road. Yes, there was. Your accent, it sounds a little peninsulan, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Oh, all right then. Still... I am tired and sore, and I have to admit, I just caught the smell of something delicious from your window. Do you mind if I ask what you're cooking in there? Uh, just a casserole, some beef, a few parsnips. Do you live alone? Oh, oh no, my husband is coming home from work. 
Actually, you do live alone. You don't have a husband, and you've never had a husband. You never met anyone who cared for you. That's what the last word tells me, and the last word does its homework. So you've got no cause to doubt. I don't have a husband. Good. Invite me in for dinner. I... You don't need to be afraid of me, Candice. And that is your name, by the way. Your name is Candice. You don't need to be frightened of me, Candice, because as soon as you saw me, you recognized me as your eldest daughter. Come home at last to stay the night, after a very long time away. Oh! I'm so sorry, darling. I, I wasn't expecting you. You're wearing the same pinafore that you wore when I left. The same dull and stinking slippers. Your hair pinned back as tight and severe as it always was. You felt so much love at the sight of me. That's what the last word says. Love. Sudden and spontaneous and unforced, like you'd never felt before towards your daughter. You hugged me at once. Oh, of, of course. What am I thinking? Come here, darling. Oh! Softer. Less bony. Oh! Better. And then, Mum... You told me just how much you loved me. I love you so, so much. And you were proud of me too. You told me that next. Oh, I am proud. You know I am. I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you and I'm proud of your brother Jamie as well. Not Jamie. Not Jamie. There was never any Jamie. How could you have a Jamie when we've just erased your husband from existence? How would that make any sense? I was your only child, Mum. And your pride was for me and me alone. Invite me in, please. Yes, yes, of course. Come on through. Uh, take a seat at the dining table, dear. I'll get some extra cutlery and I'll get supper ready for us both. Yes. Thank you, Mum. my love a little but it's all right i don't actually have to sleep any longer oh that must be nice less than you'd think knife fork Napkin. Uh, what's wrong, dear? It's just... funny coming face to face with you again. Do you remember how much pain you caused me, Mum? Pain, darling? What pain? I don't understand. Let me remind you. The last time you saw your daughter, the last word tells me, she was laughing. They'd given her a uniform and a private's rank. She was going off to serve her country, a volunteer for the war that was to come. So she was laughing, and you laughed too, even though you'd never had a sense of humour. She'd been expecting that, at long last, you would tell her that you were proud of her. She had dreamt of that moment upon parting. 
You didn't say it. But even that couldn't ruin her mood. I don't know what you were thinking as you watched her go. Perhaps you knew that she was being deeply, absurdly naive, and she would suffer terribly at the hands of the military scientists before she died. And after she suffered and she died, she would become something terrible. Perhaps you knew, but you were too cowardly to tell her. Or the government stipend you'd received as a consequence of her decision was far too attractive a prospect to give up. Perhaps you didn't know. But if you didn't know, you should have known. Because mothers are supposed to protect their daughters from the horrors of the world. You were the one she cried out for as they hurt her, as they branded her, and as they twisted her into a shape of their own making. Hour after hour, day after day, over and over again. You're crying for her now, just like she cried for you. <laughs> I'm... I'm so sorry, my love. I, I don't know what I did. I don't understand it, but I'm sorry. Do you remember my name, Mum? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't. <laughs> Nor do I. I remember very little of my life from before they hallowed me. A few faces, a few names, a few... Lingering moments. Your face, though. Your face sticks with me. For a very long time afterwards, I thought my name must be Val, because that is what the doctors kept on referring to me as amongst themselves. But eventually I realized that Val wasn't my name at all. It was shorthand. Can you guess what it stood for, Mum? No, no! It stood for valuable. There were 40 cells in that substation, and they were all full when I arrived. And by the time I left, each cell had a new inhabitant. Some died before they could become sacred. Others became saints, but were simply not valuable enough to be kept. The hallowing procedure took 64 days. And because I was a volunteer, because they'd given me a uniform and a rank, at first they apologized to me. Just for the first few days. Then they settled into the usual routine. Liars' gods aren't much in circulation anymore, so they had a lot of old prayer marks to test. They had to perfect the formula. They branded me. When the skin healed, they tried again. And as they marked my flesh, they molded my mind into something my God could inhabit, a warm and inviting shape. They piped in lies, shrieking and furious lies through the speakers of the cell. They told me that you were dead, and I was too. They told me that there was no cell, and I was outside in the rain, shivering. They told me that the world had ended. They kept me awake and told me I had slept. They made me lie to them, bold and outrageous lies, and they hurt me when I failed to convince them. When I finally died, I didn't realize it. I couldn't recognize it. And because I could no longer die, I remained awake. No longer myself, but something else. And with every lie I tell, the prayer marks spread and shift across my skin.
They're a part of me now. I will never be rid of them. I could have loved any god. That is what occurs to me now. I could have shaped my body and spirit into any image I chose, monstrous or beautiful or both at once. And at the very least, the choice would have been mine. Instead, I let them choose a shape that was useful, that served a function. Because I wanted to impress you. I wanted to become something you could be proud of, something you could love. I could have changed for myself, but instead I did it for you. You came to see me twice. I remember that as well. Since I had volunteered, that was my reward. You could come and see me as often as you wanted. But you came twice. Once on the third day, once on the fourteenth. I remember your face, Mum. On the third day, you waved. On the fourteenth day, you just looked at me and then you left. You didn't come again. And there were fifty more days after that. Will you look at me now, Mum? Are you proud of me? Can you tell me my name? I... I'm sorry. Is dinner ready? Yes, it's simmering. Is there anything else that needs to be done before dinner is ready? I just... I just light the candles. Good. That's all I need from you, then. Uh, I need to serve you. So serve me. There you go. Sorry, sorry for spilling it. <laughs> Mum? Wait. Turn to face me. It didn't feel right, did it? Seeing your daughter again. Scarred, branded, changed gazing at her face and seeing something missing there, something lost. It was like drowning. That is what the last word tells me, and the last word, it never lies. You realized something. You were not worthy of looking upon your daughter of hearing her voice, of touching her face. So you went through to the kitchen while she was busy eating her dinner. You opened the kitchen drawer, and you took out the largest pair of scissors that you found there.
Are they sharp? I, I think so. No, they weren't sharp at all. You can come back on through, Mum. You made your decision. You would wait by the stove until she had finished her dinner, until she'd gone upstairs to bed. And then you'd punish yourself for your transgressions against your daughter, whose name you had lost. You'd take the scissors to your lips, then your ears, then your eyes, then your fingers. You would take off every part of yourself that had hurt her, held her, beheld her. And when you were done with mutilating yourself, you would stumble out into the road, bleeding from your emptied face and ruined hands. You'd walk south through the countryside until you came to the end of the land, the great white cliffs of the Northern Channel. And then you'd toss yourself down into the polluted waters to sink amongst the other lost and forgotten things. That, eventually, was how you died. <laughs> mm, that was delicious. Thank you, Mum. Good night. I... <laughs> Stop doing that, okay? You're making some of the folks back here a little bit nervous. She was an enemy combatant. N no, no, she wasn't. Well, I can make her one then. It won't take long. Oh, too late. She's just lost her ears. The cruelty, Val, it's, it's too much. I need people to feel like they can rely on you. Well, press secretary, perhaps when I've won this war for you, you can point me towards my actual mother, and I'll no longer be feeling quite so frustrated. You need to move faster. Do I? Uh, CLS is gathering their forces by the old channel crossing. We... we think they're prepping for an assault across the water. We've maybe got a week. I am sure your defences on the coast will hold up. They won't. We need you to take the Conclave. I... Val, get this done. Do it quickly and we'll give you your mother. We'll track her down and we will give her to you, I promise. Who else? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, who else do you want? The doctors. The nurses. The soldiers who guarded the compound. The attendants who served the meals. I want a phone call with all of them on the line. I want that before I win your war for you, press secretary. You volunteered for this, Val. My mother's daughter volunteered. The whole point of the exercise was to make her into something new. And now that I am here, I disagree with her decision. Yes, you can have them. You can have anything you like. Good. And when Nesh has fallen, you'll give me my mother. Like I said. Sleep well, press secretary.
Prophet Faulkner? Sybil Rain? I'm so sorry, Prophet. I wasn't... No, no, no. I was just... Um, I was just... Reflecting. Uh, direct communion with the Father in the water can be... Uh, a difficult weight to bear. A, a god inside your head, I was... Um, overcome. Oh. I am sorry to add to your worries, then. Uh, we've heard from the team upriver. They found the body of Brother Fade. Anathema Carpenter must have overpowered him. Carpenter's still alive? Yes, Prophet, I fear she is. I've asked the Low Tide Congregation to arrange a special ceremony for tonight in the Dreaming Pools. We'll offer up five sacrifices to the Trawler Man in commemoration of the hero, Brother Fade. And we'll pile endless curses upon the head of the Anathema Carpenter. I thought you might want to. Y yes, yes, exactly the right decision, right? I'll be right there. Is, uh... Is that everything? Not quite. We've had word from Downriver. High Catabasian Romont wants to pay the Gulch a visit to formally bestow the Kelp wreath upon you in honour of your achievements. Our achievements, Sibylin Ryan. Our achievements. Good. We'll make him welcome. What else? Brother Philly is ready to depart for Glottage for the task you've set him. He wanted your blessing before he goes. He'll, he'll have it, of course, so... Give me a moment, please, sibling. Of course, Catabasian. Please, excuse me. and to visit her transgressions upon her tenfold. Let her be swallowed up by one mouth and regurgitated from the other. With my feet in the water and my arms to the sky, I curse her. 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 ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.